welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Thank you for joining us for the first interview in a special series where we're interviewing some of the top church leaders in the country about how to be an effective preacher and teacher. This week, we're hearing from Pastor Rick Warren. Rick Warren co-founded Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California in 1980 with his wife, Kay. Saddleback is now one of the largest and best-known churches in the world. Rick has been referred to as America's pastor and is the author of The Purpose Driven Life, one of the best-selling nonfiction books in publishing history. He also founded Pastors.com, an online interactive community providing sermons, forums, and other pastor resources. But before we hear from Rick, we want to remind you that you can check out extended portions of some of our interviews at churchleaders.com slash plus. And if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help us if you left us a review. Now, let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. We're talking about preaching, teaching, what makes it compelling. And so just want to start there, Rick. What makes teaching and preaching compelling? What are some of the attributes that makes it compelling? Because people, I mean, I've seen people give talks all the time that aren't compelling, but what makes it compelling? Uh, well, that's a good question. I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm coming to you because I think you know. So tell after me. After preaching for 52 years. Yeah. Actually, uh, what makes compelling uh, preaching compelling is doing it for the right reason doing it for the right purpose, understanding what is the purpose of preaching. And there are two passages that I actually uh, rely on. Uh, one of them, of course, is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which is Bible, what's the purpose of the Bible. And the other is uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, which tells us uh, the purpose of preaching. Uh, so let me just answer that using those two verses at first. The purpose of preaching is to fulfill the purpose of the Bible. Your understanding of the purpose of scripture is going to determine how you preach it. If you think the Bible's purpose is simply to teach theology, you're not, then you're, you're not going to miss the purpose. If you think the, the purpose of scripture is to teach the history of Israel, uh, then you're going to miss the purpose. Um, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, if you took that at face value, you might say, well, there are four purposes of the Bible, for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. And you would be close, but you would be wrong. Because there's a henna clause in Greek in, in that verse, and it is the so that. The, do, the doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness are for the so that. The purpose is not doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. The purpose is the so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So let me just tear that apart for just a minute. Uh, the, the scripture is good for doctrine. That means it shows us the path to walk on. Then it says it's good for reproof. It shows us where we got off the path. Uh, then it is good for correction. It shows us how to get back on the path. And then it's good for uh, training in righteousness, which is it shows us how to stay on the path. Or in Greek, prosodidaskalion, prosolegmon, uh, prosepinorphosine, 
and prospidean. But the real part, that's not the purpose. Those, those are the tools that get us to the purpose. There's the henna, which is so that we may be complete, uh, thoroughly equipped, uh, lacking nothing. And so what that scripture tells us is that the purpose of the Bible, therefore the purpose of preaching, is not doctrine, not reproof, not correction, not in training in righteousness. Those are the four things you do in preaching, but the purpose, these are four means to an end, for or so that. And the purpose is that the man of God may be mature, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. It's maturity and ministry. The purpose of the Bible is life change. Therefore, it is specifically to change our character, perfect, mature, complete, and it is to change our um, conduct, uh, replace bad works with good works, so that we may be fully qualified and, and, and equipped. So that's the purpose. And uh, uh, the purpose is life change. D.L. Moody, you were at a Moody Church for so many uh, years there, Ed. D.L. Moody said, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge. It was given to change our lives. And the illustration that I give on that is, if I'm going to a dentist and I'm in pain and I, he throws me back in the chair, I couldn't care less about the Greek word for, for stethoscope or molar or anything else. I, I wanna know, can you get rid of my pain? Can you change my life? And, and so often we miss the purpose of preaching. And that is, the purpose is life change, to change our character and to change our conduct, which means at the end, application is the whole ball game. It's not something you tack onto your preaching at the end, it is the sermon. It is the message. If it isn't applied, Study how many times Jesus uses the word do. This is what I call behavioral preaching. Jesus would say, go and do likewise. Uh, if you do these things, then you will be blessed. He says, now that you know them, you will be blessed if you do them. It's not enough to know scripture. All over the world, we're teaching scripture. And our knowledge is getting greater and greater and greater. We've got big heads, big bottoms, little hands, little feet, tiny hearts, because we're not doing it. Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount saying, now the guy who does these things, who puts them into action, he built his house on the rock. The guy who just listens and, and doesn't do anything, he built on sand. James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, be doers. And, and, and he says, if you put these things into practice. So the whole purpose of, of preaching is to fulfill the whole purpose of scripture which is life change. Now, how do we do that? The other verse that I, I rely on uh, a lot is, uh, is in 1 Corinthians 14, which is that great passage on prophecy uh, when he talks about tongues and prophecy. And of course, in 12, 13, 14 gifts, 13 is about love, which if I have not love, I'm sounding brass and tinkling symbol. But he says there, the man who speaks, the man who prophesies, speaks for the edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, you want to have compelling sermon? It's got to be one of these three things. The man who prophesies speaks to people for their edification, um, uh, exhortation, and, and comfort. Now, the way I define these are edification are sermons that build up. 
uh, exhortation are sermons that fire up and comfort are sermons that hold up. And to have a healthy church, this is my 43rd year at Saddleback, uh, and to have healthy disciples, you got to blend all three, hold up, fire up, and build up sermons. Now, let me, let me say this. Build up sermons, edification sermons, are doctrinal messages. What is heaven? What is hell? Who is Jesus? What is scripture? Uh, what are the great doctrines of sanctification, justification, and on and on and on? Those are build up messages. Fire up messages are messages for ministry and mission and say, let's go take that hill. Let's go win the world for Christ. Let's make a difference. Let's do something significant. Let's make a contribution. Their action, uh, you fire up people to, to, to build the, the body of Christ uh, in, in the world. Hold up messages, pretty self-explanatory. Comfort, aren't you're doing a good job. Hang in there. Uh, don't give up. Uh, you know, stay with it. Uh, you know, you're, they're messages of uh, encouragement and, uh, and, and, you know, comfort. Now, every pastor by nature is one of those three over the other two. Okay. In other words, I have, I, I'm not going to mention names, but I could say, think of a, a person who's known for doctrinal preaching. There are famous pastors who, man, they, they are great for teaching doctrine. But their people aren't doing anything. Uh, they're, they're a classroom church. Sit still while I instill. And they take notes, and they know who Hezekiah is, and they know who Jabez is. And, uh, you know, they can, they can tell you the, the history of Scripture. But there's no lives being changed. There's no evangelism. There's no ministry in the community. There's no fighting uh, injustice. There's no uh, – the, the discipleship is we made. It's all head knowledge. Okay. Then there are, are pastors who are comfort. There's a very famous pastor who uh, every week it's the same sermon, just a different text. And it's basically, you're doing a good job. Hang in there. Keep on. Keep smiling. Believe and, and, and you'll receive. And it's all, if all you do is build, do build up messages, you get big head, big bottom, tiny heart, tiny hands, tiny feet. If all you do is comfort messages, you build a flabby church. There's no muscle uh, because again, and they're not, they're not taking on the world's problems. They're not uh, growing in Christ. Okay. But then there are the, the, the fire up messages, which let's go take that hill. Let's finish the task. Let's fulfill the great commission thing like that. I, by nature am a fire up preacher, but you can't fire up every week or you're going to burn people out. You have to balance, uh, hold up, fire up and build up messages so that there's health. Uh, you, you, you don't shear the sheep every week. You feed them every week. And then every so often you shear them. But you don't do any style all the time. And so if you're going to do a, if you want to be compelling in your preaching, you got to do variety and you've got to do some hold up, some fire up, some build up. Now, the truth is when I, when, when I was going through a COVID, when we did a 2020 I picked a very practical book, the book of James. I did, what, 32 messages through the book of James. A preponderance of those were build up or, or, or actually they were hold up messages because people were going through a tough time. So I did steer it more toward comfort because people were going, who am I? Where am I coming from? What's going to happen? What's in it? 
deal with, with COVID, et cetera. So you do that. But now we're back into the other kinds of the buildup and, and the fire up. So first, you want to be compelling. Know the purpose of scripture, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Okay. Character and conduct. Uh, and then second, that you use a blend, a biblical blend of edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's a long answer, but I gave it to you. <laughs> it is a long answer, but I like it. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, we've been friends for a long time and I, you know, preached there many times and watch you preach. It feels to me that your preaching has changed in some ways. You're still preaching for life change has always been a theme and you reflected yeah. it there. Yeah. Um, but I think that if I look at your preaching in the nineties, um, you know, when we, the kind of the peak of the seeker movement, uh, I mean, that was a key part of how you were engaging, uh, seekers, baby boomers are coming back to church and more, uh, today. And, and maybe that's just the difference of our culture and more. What are some ways you think you're preaching in a, in being compelling to people? How yeah. has that changed over the decades? Well, that's a good question. Hopefully it's gotten better. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope, I hope I look back at sermons from the, the, uh, you know, the eighties and go, Oh my goodness. I'm embarrassed. They even taught that. Uh, however, this is interesting. You know, Ed, I'm in my last month before I step down. Andy Wood is going to be the new pastor of, of Saddleback Church, 43 years in, in one place. And uh, in three weeks, I will be doing my final message as senior pastor. The last week of August, I'm going to do my final message. And you know what I decided? I'm going to preach as a bookend the exact sermon I preached for the first sermon 43 years ago. So I'm going to end uh, uh, my 43-year ministry as senior pastor by repeating the message I preached to 60 people at a trial-run service um, uh, 43 years ago. It's still relevant because I, I did a message. It was on faith. I've done more messages about building people's faith than anything else. It's my life message. But it was really on six reasons this church is going to succeed. Now, I was expecting maybe 15 people would show up at the trial run service. It wasn't actually our official service. We had about 15 people coming to a Bible study. I just, I said, we're going to go down, we're going to practice, uh, um, and I'm going to preach, and we're going to sing, and we're going to take an offering, and we're going to pretend like we know what we're doing. So next week on Easter, when people show up, it looks like we've had one, one week practice at least. And I did a message based out of Nehemiah and out of Zechariah, and and. It, don't despise the day of small beginnings. And though you're beginning with little, it will become much. And, and the message that Nehemiah was given as they were going to rebuild uh, the wall and then the temple with Ezra uh, was a message of building for the first time for me. And that message was, here's why I have absolute confidence this church is going to be a success. And as I look back and see those six things taken from Scripture, they're still true today. And there's still true why Saddleback will continue to succeed with a new pastor. I know that God says repeatedly, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's three generations. What he's saying there, it doesn't matter who the leader is. I don't change. And I will be faithful. And so in, in, in the passing of the baton to a new pastor, I'm ending my 43 years with the same message that I started with 43 years ago. The message of faith that built this church is the same message of faith 
still relevant today, that's going to build the next generation. Um, so I'm excited about that. But how does this kind of change happen? What changes, what's changed in me is realizing more how similar people's problems are. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, in other words, you know, you know, there are a lot of futurists who are always out there going, what's the world going to be like in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? I don't really go in for that at all. Because the truth is, none of us really know what's going to happen. Nobody knew the day before 9-11 how much it was going to change the world. Nobody knew the day before COVID hit how much it would change the world. So you don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less, as Jesus said, uh, the next year or the next 10 years. What I look at, what's not going to change in the next 20 years? What's not going to change is people are going to have the exact same problem. And guess what? Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're going to have the exact same problems. People are going to both, both believers and unbelievers will deal with loneliness. Both believers and unbelievers will deal with fear. Both believers and unbelievers will deal with anxiety, anger, uh, conflict in relationships. Both believers and unbelievers will deal with depression. Both believers and unbelievers uh, get divorced at the exact same rate. Christian singles and teens are sleeping together at the same rate that non-Christians are. Uh, the moral climate of the, of the culture continues to decay. Um, you know, even out of coming out of COVID, you know, the great reset churches are half empty, but God has returned, said, my word will not return void. Okay. What does that mean? The, the reality is a lot of preaching appears to be returning void. And yet Jesus, uh, uh, Isaiah says, God says my word in Isaiah 55, 11, my word will not return void. Well, when it does return void, what's the problem? Well, it's not the message. It's the way we're communicating it. We have the most relevant message uh, in, in history. We're just irrelevant in the, in the academic way we've been taught to share it. Uh, if I had preached the way I was taught in seminary, Saddleback would have never grown. I wouldn't. This last week, I did two things, Ed. I did my last 101 class membership, class 101 membership which is a four-hour class. I wrote it 43 years ago. And I taught it every month for 20 years. Then Kay taught it. And then other pastors took it because, uh, and members, because I was doing four and six services every weekend. And then I did my last baptism. So a week ago Sunday, I did, Kay and I taught the last 101 class. 2,300 plus people took that class. My largest class in 43 years was my last class. And then uh, yesterday, uh, I was till 10 o'clock at night baptizing 624 people. Hmm. So uh, that, that puts us around 58,000 baptized at Saddleback. How do you have that kind of life change? You have to focus on application. The reality is a lot of preaching appears to be returning void because um, it, it's the style of preaching that, that has to change, not the content. People say, well, we need to make the Bible relevant. I totally disagree. The Bible is relevant. It is relevant. You don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant. What's irrelevant is the way you teach it. And if you do it the way you were taught in seminary, uh, in the, uh, using Aristotelian logic and, and the academic uh, scholasticism method of, of preaching, you're, you're going to be irrelevant. We are to be bridge builders. 
We're, we're to be bridge builders between Nineveh and now. It's easy to be biblical if you don't care about being relevant. And it's easy to be relevant if you don't care about being biblical. The key is not learning how to build a bridge between text and people's needs. And the, the key between text and people's needs is what I call the application bridge. Okay, so um, let's talk to me a little bit about that. You, you said, I just wrote down a couple of quotes. It's not the message, it's how we communicate it. Yeah. So, and the application bridge is key to that. You keep coming back to yeah. preaching for life change. Yeah. But, I, but I wanna press on a little bit on the question related to, you, you said earlier, for believers and unbelievers. Yeah. My observation is, is that 30 years ago, you were talking to believers and seekers in a seeker sensitive sort of way, uh, differently than you are today. Have the have the questions that or the engagement that makes preaching compelling to unbelievers changed? No, no. What's right. changed is believers know no more about the Bible than non-believers. Oh, okay, okay, okay. In other words, they are uh, forty years ago. A Christian might be might be biblically literate. Today, I assume a Christian is biblically illiterate. So they both have to be dealt with at the same area. As I said, there's both a then and a now in, in preaching. And in you know, one of my mentors, uh, John Stott, wrote a book on this called Between Two Worlds. That was his book on preaching, Between Two Worlds. And there's the Bible text, that's the world of, of then. And then there's people's needs, that's the world of now. There's the word on one side, is the world world on the other. We have past revelation on one side, current situation on this side. There's the then and the now, what was and what is. What was demands interpretation. What is demands personalization. And between those two is that bridge that I'm talking about, which is the implication. It, it's easy to be a Bible commentator. You like to live in the, in the then. And, uh, and it's easier to be a communicator if you just want to live in the now. But to be a biblical preacher, you have to do both. And it's like walking a tightrope. It's very, very easy to fall off either side. Some people fall off the side uh, in an effort to be relevant and current, and they're just preaching fadism, pop psychology, little moralism, success motivation with a few scripture thrown in. Okay, on the other side, uh, they're droning on and on about biblical background, ancient world customs, original languages, uh, doctrinal trivia, with no application to today. Every pastor, by again, by nature, is going to be biased toward one or the other. Some people love to do that back, background study, word studies. It's been, they, they spend six days a week in their study, uh, and they're more familiar with the, the streets of Jerusalem than they are in their own cities. But the other only tend to care about now, and they want to be pop, and they, they want to get a quote for social media and, and be on TikTok. Um, the challenge is to declare eternal truth that never changes and apply them in a way that's always changing. I, I, I used to think that you couldn't speak to both audiences at the same time. I deny that today. I guess that's what you're getting at. Because yeah, I guess I, so. I, guess so. Yeah, I don't... I, I don't... It's, it's interesting to me. I didn't know you used to not think that. I mean, as long as I've known you, you thought you could preach to both audiences yeah, yeah, yeah. well. And, and I, and, but you're saying that the shift has mainly well, been with Christians. Well, I, 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 would tell, I, I would not, I would say we, we nodded our cap to a seeker-sensitive 
but Heibel's uh, and others actually divided their services. The weekend was simply you preached a non-believer. The midweek you preached a believer. I never really bought into that. I, I felt like, you know, my life versus Acts 13, 36, David served God's purpose in his generation, and then he died. He does the timeless in a timely way. He does that which never changes in a world that's constantly changing. He does the uh, the uh, the truth once held and once given to the saints, but he does it in a, in a contemporary way. It, it's like Issachar, understood the times, knew what Israel should do. And so uh, the key in, in any preaching is to find the timeless truth. And that is the universal principle that spans not only all time, but all culture. And, and you ask, what is, what is the response that this, re this text requires? What does it want me to do? And then you think of your audience and go, what are their needs? What are their hurts? What are their sins? What are their interests? Uh, how much do they already know? That kind of stuff. What reactions should I expect? I, when I preach, Ed, having now preached for 52 years, you know, I was licensed to preach when I was 16. I was still, I was, I was licensed by my local church at 16. I was still in high school, a student body president and preaching on the weekends. And I had done 120 harvest type crusades before I was 20 years old. And that's how I met Billy Graham. Billy Graham heard about this long haired, skinny kid on the West coast, a teenager with wire rim glasses who was preaching up a storm, 120 crusades before he was 20. Um, and he, and he took me under his arm. I met him when I was 18. What I learned pretty early on is some things I know about every audience, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, whether they're Christian, I know this, I know everybody wants to be loved. Doesn't matter if you're Christian or non-Christian. I know that everybody wants their life to count. That's what purpose is all about. Purpose driven life. They crave meaning, purpose, significance. I know that no matter how wealthy or successful they are, their life is empty without Christ. Doesn't matter if you're Christian, non-Christian. I know that many of them will carry a load of guilt. I know that many of them are carrying bitterness for being hurt. Everybody's been hurt. I know there's a universal fear of death. But what I'm trying to do is figure out, when a pastor goes, I don't know what to preach this week, it tells me two things. One, you're not having a quiet time. Because if you're having a quiet time, you, you get plenty of material. It's never, I don't have enough to preach. It's like, I, I'm leaving Saddleback with literally thousands of unwritten sermons that I put in files that I never got to. If you're, if you're in the Word every day, you're not going to run out of material. But the other thing is, um, is that translating it into today uh, means stopping and thinking, right? instead of just asking the question, what should I preach on? Ask the question, to whom will I be preaching? If you ask that question, and then you visualize, who's going to be there? Why would God give me a message totally irrelevant to the person he's planning on bringing? He wouldn't. So I, my prayer every week is not, Lord, what should I preach on? My prayer is, Lord, who are you bringing this week? And, and then I think through and I, I visualize 
that person sitting there and that person sitting there and that person, this comes from being a pastor, you know, your people and go, what's he going to need? What's she going to need? What are they going to need? It's the secret of Jesus effectiveness as a communicator. The Bible says he knew their thoughts. He knew what they needed to hear. Uh, and he, he, the Bible says, I love it. I think it's in the message in uh, Mark chapter four, somewhere down around 23. I, I think it's 23, 33, something like that. It says with many stories, uh, he presented the message to them. And then there's this phrase, it says, fitting the stories to their experience and maturity. I love that. Fitting the stories to their experience and maturity. So why aren't, if you preach application, life application, the word becomes flesh. I become a doer of the word. I, so that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work, ministry and mission. Why aren't more sermons built around application, that kind of stuff? Well, in seminary, we're often taught that people are going to make the necessary connection themselves. They don't. It's a big assumption. Well, I'm just going to teach the text and let people make their own application. Dumb. It's just, just dumb. We said, well, I'm going to leave it to the Holy Spirit. You are the Holy Spirit's tool. You are the Holy Spirit's tool. Some people don't want to make application because it's convicting. It makes people uncomfortable sometimes. You know, people say the truth will set you free, but it makes you miserable first. Uh, sometimes we don't want to make application because we haven't applied it in our own lives. There was a famous, well-known radio preacher here in Orange County who 30 years ago had a moral failure. It was a big deal. Lost his ministry. But within about three months, he was back on the radio preaching. And I thought, now this is going to be interesting. He had an affair, committed adultery. Um, everybody knows it. What in the world is he going to preach on? And it was interesting, when he came back on the radio, the very first thing he did was do the book of Revelation. And I thought, well, that was safe. Okay. Okay. In other words, he didn't have to get anywhere near personal life application for a long time. It actually, life change or behavioral preaching takes far more time and effort to prepare. And a lot of times we run out of preparation. It's pretty easy. It, to just preach through a book, look up in the commentaries and say what they say. You spend more time preaching and then you go, well, I don't have time for the application. It gets the short end of the stick. But that's where the life change happens. Okay, so what is that? I, I've heard, you know, and this, is, this was decades ago. I heard you say yeah. that, you know, prepare the sermon, maybe the way, as you mentioned, you learned from seminary. Uh, then write out your application points. Then, because you've done the preparation in the, in the text, but then preach your application points as, as your outline. Uh, I don't know if you still use that language or describe I that. 100% but... 1,000% believe in it more than I even did 30 years ago. Okay. Here's the thing. Take any book of the New Testament uh, and, and compare how much of it is doctrine and how much of it is application. Okay, let's take the most doctrinal book of the New Testament. Romans. Romans has 16 chapters. If you go through uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, all doctrine, seven, application, eight, application, nine, 10, 11, doctrine, 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 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, application, half the book, 50% is application. It's the most doctrinal book of the Bible. 
you take the book of Ephesians, okay? One, two, three, chapter, okay, doctrine. Four, five, six, application. Uh, you go almost any, you'll never find a book that doesn't have at least 50% application. What we do is we have 95% interpretation, 5% application at the end, and we think we're preaching. What, what, what I would say is you, you reverse that. As I used to say, if people are only going to remember your, uh, your points, which, by the way, is why I never, never, never preach without handing out an outline, because the shortest pencil is longer than the longest memory. The statistic that I discovered 45 years ago, before I even started Saddleback, was from the U.S. Air Force that said, uh, we forget 90 to 95% of everything we hear within 72 hours. <laughs> if you want a statistic to depress the average pastor, that's it. That means I, uh, I can work 18, 20 hours on a message, preach it on Sunday or Saturday night, and, and by Wednesday, they've already forgotten everything but the joke, okay, or, or 5%. Or someone could have sat under my ministry for 43 years and they only remember 5% of the sermon if they haven't written it down, they haven't taken notes. Five, that's discouraging. That's depressing. And so I thought, if they're only going to remember the points, what do you want them to remember? A cute little alliteration hmm. of the text? Or do you actually want them to remember the application statements? In seminary, I was taught like this. Observe the text. Interpret the text. Apply the text. Go to the next point. Observe the text. Uh, uh, interpret the text. Apply the text. Go to the next point. Observe the text. Uh, apply it. I mean, uh, you know, interpret it and answer it or apply it. And so the points are uh, see Job running, you know, see Job uh, repenting, see Job, uh, you know, ranting and raving. Uh, you know, it, it's their textual points. And what they'd say is make the point, put your application underneath. Make the point, put your application underneath. Make the point, put your application underneath. 40 years ago, I flipped that. I flipped it. And I started make the application first and then give them the background. Make the application, then give them the background. So if they're only going to remember the points, make sure those are application statements. And they don't have to be cute. They just have to be clear, you know, Early days, I did more alliterations and more trying to figure out cute ways to say, I don't even try that anymore. It's just, it's the, the simplest, quickest way. It's like, like you're preaching on Twitter. How can you say it in the fewest number of words? And, and you say the fewest number of words uh, in the point, and it's the application. They're writing that down. Then you can go to the background, you can go to the interpretation, the observation. It, it, here's the difference. If you use style one, you're a commentator. If you use style two, you're a communicator. And that's what's compelling. People are not interested in commentators today. The Bible says knowledge without application produces pride. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And, you know, this, when I think about sometimes, how can somebody sit in a ministry uh, under under pastor for 20 years, and they're still carnal and cantankerous, and those people are storehouses of biblical knowledge, and they could explain any passage and, and, and defend any doctrine, but they're unrighteous. They're unloving. They're selfish. They're judgmental. Why hasn't it changed their character?
because knowledge without application produces pride. And so they may know their systematic theology backwards and forwards, but they're mean and they're angry and, and they're judgmental. Uh, and, and of course, it also brings judgment to them to know anyone who knows what to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. So, so let me go back again. How much of a sermon should be application? We go to a book like Galatians, 100% of the book's application. James, five chapters, 80% application. First Peter, 60% application. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, 90% application. And I know there's some people out there who think Paul was a deeper preacher than Jesus because Jesus dealt with life. Paul is not my model for preaching. Jesus is. And, and, and even, you know, even the most profound theological passage in Scripture, which would be Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis passage, 2, two 5 to 10 or 11. Jesus, uh, it's on Jesus. It's written by Paul. It's set in the very, very middle, the most profound passage on how Jesus emptied himself uh, and humbled himself, becoming a servant uh, and dying on the cross. That's right in the middle, right in the middle of a very practical passage about humility. If you go back and look at great preachers, Ed, you know, you know I'm a Spurgeon fan because uh, my great-great-grandfather was led to Christ by Spurgeon. And he went to Spurgeon's uh, college and was sent to America as a, as a circuit-riding preacher. But Spurgeon, people, people read Spurgeon's sermon. Spurgeon wouldn't preach the way he does today because he's brilliant. He, didn't have, he didn't, wasn't talking to a TV generation, much less a radio or internet generation. But, you know, um, when, when you study the sermons of great preachers throughout history, I once took the, the book. I've got over 500 books on preaching in my library. 500. I might have one of the larger books, uh, libraries, just on the subject of preaching because I wanted to become a great communicator. And I've studied the sermons of great preachers in church history, and I've highlighted their sermons. Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, Wesley, Finney, Moody, Oswald Chambers, Tozer, all, all of them average between 45%, 75% application. None of them were 10% appliers, like we're taught in seminary. So um, when you prepare, I mean, this is a key question for so many. Um, so when you prepare, how do you, um, how do you work in such a way that you bring the compelling nature of, you keep coming back to life application, yeah. uh, you know, preaching yeah. for life change. Yeah. Help me to think and help listeners to say, just to think, how should I do that so that I'm able to bring forth that life change and that application? All right. Uh, if anybody's listening, they might want to write. I'm going to give you some statements. Okay. okay. These are some statements that I've learned um, about preaching in preaching for 52 years. Here's the first thing I would tell everybody. All behavior is um, it's based on a belief. People don't do things without having a belief behind it. You ever ask the question, why do I do what I do? The answer is because you're believing something. If you go get a divorce because you've accepted a belief, a false belief, I'll be happier disobeying God. If you have sex outside of marriage, it's because you've accepted a belief. I believe it's okay for me to do this. All behavior is based on a belief. 
Okay, And if we're going to be behavioral change people, life change preaching, we have to realize I got to look for what's the belief behind the bad behavior. Okay, Number two, behind every sin is a lie I'm believing. Very, very important. So when I'm thinking about what am I going to say and who am I going to say it to, when you sin, at that moment, you think it's the best thing to do, that you've been deceived. When your kids do something dumb, at that moment, they think it's the best thing to do. The Bible says, I think it's Titus 3.3, 3, um, at one time you were foolish and disobedient and you were deceived and enslaved, okay, by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Uh, when you look at your congregation and you see what's wrong in their lives, you can see their behavior. The tough part is figuring out the lie behind the behavior. But the wiser you get in ministry, the more discerning you become. And, and what happens is you see, start seeing the same patterns over and over. I can pick it out easily today. Number three, change always starts in the mind, not in the behavior, not in, not in the actions. This principle is taught all the way through Scripture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way you think affects the way you feel, and the way you feel affects the way you act. Change always starts in the mind. Now, because of those first three things, I will say these. Number four, to help people change, we must change their beliefs about their behavior first. Not just simply belief about God or belief about a doctrine. The battle for sin always starts in the mind. And I've got to help them see the lie they've been believing. Today, when you look at society, everything that's gone wrong in society is based on, well, I believe a lie about that. It's the, that's why Jesus said, the truth will, will set you free. Every time you think a thought, it creates an electrical impulse in your brain, a pattern. The more you think that thought, the more it becomes a rut in, in, in your brain. And eventually, if you think a thought long enough, and it's a lie, something you believe about yourself, something you believe about God, something you believe about life, something you believe about heaven, hell, Satan, about suffering, anything, you believe enough, it, it, it becomes a rut, and then you become auto, uh, on autopilot. Um, it's hard to obey God when your mind has not been renewed. So I'm in the mind renewal business, changing the mind. Of course, you know what that is. It's meta, metanoia. To change your mind is metanoia. And so really what I do every week is preach for repentance. But I preach for repentance using the true meaning of the word repentance, not the fake meaning. If you ask the typical person on the street what repentance means, they will say it means be sorry and stop all your bad stuff. That's no, no, no Greek lexicon in history will ever define metanoia, repentance, as stop doing bad stuff. None of it literally meant to, to change or to over noia, noose, mind. It just means change your mind. I used to think that. Now I think this. I used to think that. Now I think this. And, and so... When we make a mistake as pastor focusing on external behavior, Jesus knows 
The root is the internal thought. Out of the heart comes, you know, the words. Now, the Bible word for changing your mind, what I'm making a plea for is that everybody is preaching. You start preaching for repentance every week, but you do biblical repentance, which is helping people change your mind. I used to think like this. Now I think like this about my marriage, about money, about time, about myself. The Bible word for changing your mind is repentance. It's not turn or burn, stop doing bad things. Um, we are in the mind changing business. Now, I can't change anybody's mind. You can't change anybody's mind. It is the applied word of God that changes people's mind. It is truth that changes people's mind. It is the Holy Spirit that changes people's mind. We speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths, 1 Corinthians 2. So there's a word and there's a spirit uh, element in preaching. A lot of preaching today is sadly missing the spirit part. Uh, it, it, they're reading the commentaries. They're reading the theologies. Uh, but it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Lord. Uh, Paul says, our weapons uh, can destroy the strongholds. What are the strongholds? They're mental strongholds. They're believing a lie about this will make me happy. This will make me loved. This will make me not lonely. This will make me whatever. Uh, it says we capture every thought. And, and, and make it give up, make it surrender uh, to, to Christ. That is the spiritual warfare every preacher is doing every single week. You are, you are helping people change their mind. And I love that phrase. Uh, it's life application, uh, and, and which, by the way, because changing minds is not easy. That's why you're worn out when you finish preaching. Mm. You've been in a battle. And what you were doing is you may not even realize it. You were trying to help people's minds change. They change their mind. You can't change it for them. But you can, by applying the word of God under the power of the spirit, changing the way I think will change the way I act. That's the fruit of repentance. And that's why I say the deepest kind of preaching is preaching for repentance. Life application is not shallow preaching. It's deeper than all those other kinds that they think are deep. When shallow teaching, what's shallow? Here's, here's what's shallow. Teaching doctrine without applying it for life change. That's shallow preaching. Uh, life change only happens when somebody's thinking is changed. And so every week what I'm trying to do I'm trying to communicate God's word in such a practical way um, that it changes the way they think about God, money, time, life, you know, all those things I just mentioned. If you look at scripture, this is New Testament preaching. The, the, the repentance or change your mind, metanoia, true repentance, not stop doing bad stuff. That's not repentance. That's the fruit of repentance. Repentance is change your mind. John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of God is heaven, uh, is, is he near. Jesus, from that time on, Jesus began to preach repentance. The 70, they went out and preached repentance. Uh, Peter, repent, okay, and believe, be baptized. Paul, now he commands everyone to repent. Uh, John, uh, in Revelation, repent. 
pardon me for a personal example. How do you build a church where you have over 73,000 people have signed a membership covenant, 57,000 of them have been baptized, and then you move them into over 9,200 small groups, and then you move them over 25,000 of them serving in ministry actively right now, over 500, and you've had 26,869 sent to the mission field, to 197 come. How do you build a church like that? You got to preach differently. It takes a certain style of preaching to bring them in, to build them up, teach them out, send them out, to produce lasting change where you're, you're bringing them into membership, building them up to maturity, training them for ministry, send them out in life mission. You have to do three things. You have to enlighten the mind. Uh, you have to engage the emotions. Uh, you have to challenge the will. Let me say it again. The kind of preaching that changes has to have all three of these. You, you enlighten the mind. I used to see this, but now I see this. And, and you challenge the lie. You know, I used to do a Bible study for Hollywood producers. And the guy who did Shrek and the guy who did the X-Men series and the guy who did Star Trek, they were all in that Bible study. And I used to tell them, guys, you don't have to preach in your movies. Just challenge the lie. Just challenge the lie in your movie. I mean, James Bond goes from woman to woman to woman to woman, and you never see the broken heart. You, you challenge the lie. Enlighten the mind, engage the emotions, challenge the will. Every, this is the difference, Ed, between preaching and teaching. You don't have to challenge the will with teaching. That, you can do that in the classroom. But in a preaching, every sermon comes down eventually to two words. Every single sermon has to come down to two words. It says, will you? Will you? And I, every week, for 43 years at Saddleback and 53 years in ministry, every week I'm going, will you? Are you going to do? And you have the courage to stay there, knowing there's a knowing element, a feeling element, and a volitional element. An effective message appeals to all three. Sometimes that will needs to be challenged. Sometimes that will needs to be encouraged. Rick Warren, fascinating, helpful conversation. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us about preaching. You've been hearing from Pastor Rick Warren. Be sure to check out his book, The Purpose Driven Life, and the resources at pastors.com. Thanks again for listening to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.